Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the ninth chapter of Acts. Be reading verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's Word. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord, uh, the Lord said, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying, and in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. Again, I'll begin by acknowledging um, my indebtedness to John Stott's commentary on the book of Acts, which has been really helpful. Uh, In the book of Acts, we see Jesus continuing to operate after his resurrection and his ascension. So now he's operating through his people, his body. He's still the head. He's still directing traffic, if you will. He's now working in a way that uh, takes him from just being uh, confined to wherever he is in Galilee or wherever, and now he is spreading out through his people. This is Jesus himself working through his body. He is the head. His purpose and power are now being channeled through them. He gave this mission to his disciples, you recall, in Jerusalem, which is just another, really, another version of the Great Commission that he had given to his disciples earlier. And now in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he tells them that when they receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon them, that they are going to be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We have seen Peter and Stephen in Jerusalem, for example. We've seen Philip in Samaria and the end of the earth. As he, last week we looked at his uh, approach and evangelization of the Ethiopian eunuch. We know that the disciples have already scattered to Judea and the surrounding area because of the great persecution that broke out after the martyrdom of Stephen. And so Luke is now going to tell us of two seminal conversions 
that are going to have a powerful effect and a lasting effect on the world. Saul of Tarsus and then Cornelius the Gentile centurion. So today we want to begin to look at Saul. So let's set the scene a bit, a little background information, some context for what what we've read about here in Acts chapter 9. Every story, every good story at least, has an antagonist. It has a villain. This is the person who is trying to thwart the plan or undermine the hero. The antagonist helps move the story along, if you will. And so the villain usually represents our ancient foe. Jesus has said that his disciples were going to be witnesses all over the world. Saul's plan was to see to it that God's plan didn't happen. He was going to shut down those witnesses. He was not going to let them go forth to the end of the earth. So that was his mission. His mission was the exact opposite of God's mission. But God's sovereign plan, where he messed up here uh, in a way, is that God's plan included using the villain, Saul, to spread the gospel. We read in verses 1 and 2, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul's mission was to stamp out the church. He was personally consumed with this. Perhaps he saw this as a way to gain favor with his teacher Gamaliel, or just perhaps favor with the council in general. Perhaps Paul or Saul had uh, political aspirations to rise into prominent leadership in the council. And so he's tracking down Christians specifically to imprison them and to kill them. This is the man who would write later in Romans 5, verse 8. It's good to keep this in mind. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That describes Saul. God's sovereign grace is going to interrupt this intense persecutor of the church. John Calvin commented, Luke records the story of Paul's conversion. He tells us how the Lord not only brought him under his control when he was like a wild animal, but also made him a new person. So Luke thinks this story is so important, he actually records it three different times, twice when Paul is retelling it in chapter 22, and even the book of Acts closes, essentially, in the last chapter uh, with another telling of Paul's conversion. We've already seen Saul mention uh, him, uh, Saul mentioned three times by Luke up to this point as a bitter opponent of Christ and of the church. Remember, this is the guy at whose feet uh, the men laid their clothes so that they wouldn't be impeded as they threw rocks 
at Stephen as they stoned him to death. He gave approval, we're told, in eight, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. He actually gave approval to Stephen's death. And in 8.3, it says he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So chapter 9 opens with Luke telling us that Saul is still doing this. This is not a momentary thing where he got mad on a Thursday and did something. This is a, a sustained effort on his part. He's still breathing, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, now that the believers had scattered from Jerusalem because of the persecution, um, Saul has set out to round them up from other places. So he's headed to Damascus, uh, which is north there, and he, warrant, he has warrants from the high priest for their arrest. This involved an aggressive house-to-house search for Christians, for those who were of the way. If he found a family, think of this. This is Saul, later the Apostle Paul. If he found a family praying in their home behind closed doors, he would burst in with his men. He would drag them out, bind them, take them to Jerusalem, 150 miles away, and place them in prison to be tried and in some cases executed. We can only imagine the terror of the little children and what they must have felt as their families are being ripped apart. This is not a fairy tale. These are fam- Imagine this was happening right now in our city. How fearful would we be as we sat here this morning? It would be hard to imagine a more fired-up young man bent on the eradication of the followers of Jesus. Here is how Paul will later describe himself at that time, Acts 26:11, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. You understand what he's saying there? He compelled them. He beat them. He threatened them. He tortured them until they denied Jesus. And being exceedingly enraged against them, Paul says, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He wasn't just worried about Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to go out there to the edges and I'm going to round this crowd up and I'm going to wipe them out. He was full of pride. He had a complete absence of mercy. And this will make his conversion more stark. John Calvin again commented, God's grace is seen not only in such a cruel wolf being turned into a sheep, but also in his assuming the character of a shepherd. So let's look at Saul's encounter with Jesus. Saul and his entourage had almost completed their probably six or seven day journey, about 150 miles again to Damascus. Damascus was an oasis of beauty, uh, just after you've been traveling through the desert. Later in chapter 22, 6, Paul said that this happened, this situation where the light appears, happened at about noon. 
Suddenly, a great light from heaven shone around me. He also gives this detail in Acts 26:13. Along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. So what was that light? In the Old Testament, God often showed himself, whether it was at creation or during the Exodus uh, on the mountain or in Ezekiel's vision, he shows himself in the form of fire or a flashing light or lightning. So this light on the road to Damascus was Paul's encounter with the glory of Jesus Christ. Saul is blinded, falling to the ground before his conqueror. Every knee shall bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. By the way, do you remember what happened at the arrest of Jesus as the many soldiers approached? Jesus said to them, whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. In an audible voice, Jesus addresses Saul and asks him, Kind of an interesting question. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus also answered Saul's question when he says, who who is this? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So to persecute the church is the same thing as persecuting Jesus. And I'll come back to Saul's kicking against the goads in a moment. The text tells us, That this big shot, Saul, is literally trembling when this happens and astonished, amazed, shocked. And he said, Lord, good question. What do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go to the city and you'll be told what you must do. Those traveling with Saul, part of the muscle, stood speechless. They heard a voice, couldn't make out what was being said, and they didn't see anyone. It reminded me of a story I really like from the Old Testament. Do you remember when the king of Syria came up against Israel in 2 Kings 6, where we read, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? You got the picture? Just this massive army, overwhelming horses, chariots. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, 
The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. See, a lot of parallels here in what's happening on the road to Damascus. You see, there's a seen world, there's an unseen world, and they're both worlds and they're both real. In Acts 22.9, Paul tells us that, quote, Those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So they see the light, but they don't see Jesus. They hear the voice, but they don't understand Jesus. Maybe it's because Jesus spoke in Aramaic. I don't know if that's uh, was what was the issue. But Jesus was revealing himself to Saul. Saul's in opposition. Saul is hell-bent on destroying Christ and the church. And now Jesus is taking the initiative and Jesus is intervening. Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were open, when his eyelids came up, he couldn't see. So they lead him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Saul was traveling to Damascus as a powerful, proud, self-confident opponent of Jesus Christ. And he is entering Damascus humble and blind and now a captive of Christ. For a time, the Lord took Saul's physical sight away, perhaps so that Saul could experience physical blindness and understand that he had been spiritually blind all along. He had just experienced the objective encounter with the risen and glorified Jesus Christ, and Paul would later describe the event this way in Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me. It was God's initiative according to his own good pleasure. Paul further illustrates this with this image from Philippians 3.12. Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. The word here means to seize, or we could say arrest. So Saul's out arresting Christians, and God says, oh yeah, I'll arrest you. Hold it right there. Hands behind your back. Down on the ground. When the grace of God arrests you, everything changes. Now let's circle back to the statement Jesus made to Saul in verse 5. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. This was a common expression found in both Greek and Latin literature, a rural image which rose from the practice of farmers goading their oxen in the fields. Goads were usually made of little sharp sticks that were placed near the hooves or feet of the oxen. And if they got out of line... Uh, They were used to urge a stubborn ox to move. 
Occasionally the ox would kick at that goad, which would stab into the flesh of its leg and cause great pain. So the Lord apparently had been working on Saul perhaps for years, prodding him, goading him. So while we tend to think of the road to Damascus primarily as this sudden conversion of the of uh, Saul, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. This was not the first time Jesus had been at work on Saul. In fact, Saul's strong, over-the-top opposition to Jesus and his followers, I think, is an indication that he recognized Jesus and his followers as powerful and significant threats. What were some of the goads? Well, perhaps Saul was having some doubts, especially right now. Maybe he had seen or even met Jesus before. They're similar ages. Uh, maybe they, maybe he heard him teach. They both had visited Jerusalem and the temple. And even if they had not personally met, there was still no doubt that Saul would have heard all the reports about Jesus, his teaching, his miracles, his claims. He was obviously part of the council workings and knew what was going on there regarding Jesus and his crucifixion and uh, the, announce, the, the sound, uh, uh, the resurrection. In addition, he had known about the many witnesses that had been raised from the dead and seen by many. You remember when Jesus uh, appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and asked what they, who they were talking about, and they were amazed. They couldn't imagine that there was anyone who didn't hadn't heard about what had happened to Jesus. Well, Saul would have heard. Saul knew. Saul was very aware of Jesus. Second, of course, there was Stephen. We know that Saul was present at his trial and his execution. He was one of those that Luke describes. Think of this. Saul sitting there watching the trial of Stephen. And here's what he sees, according to Luke, looking steadfastly at Stephen, that is, those who were present, saw his face as the at, as the as a face of an angel. He also heard Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, and perhaps his wisdom in the synagogue, and the courage of Stephen while he was being stoned. That had to be burned into the memory and the conscience of Saul. And Stephen's prayer for the forgiveness of his executioners and his claim to have seen Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And now Saul has seen that same Jesus. Third, in addition to his doubts and his memory of Stephen, Saul's conscience was likely adding to his inner turmoil and doubts. While on the one hand, he tells us in Philippians 3.3 as he's describing his his view of himself when he was still Saul, before he was converted, he says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. That's how he saw himself on the outside. Yet we know what Jesus said about the Pharisees, and remember Saul was a Pharisee, that they were like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appears beautiful outwardly, but inside is full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. That's the reality of Saul. 
In the end, he had no power. He had no peace. But he wouldn't admit it yet. He was kicking violently against the goads of Jesus. The incident on the road to Damascus wasn't the beginning, but rather the culmination of God's convicting work through the Holy Spirit. It's an old story. It's an old story that has been repeated many times. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis called himself, quote, the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. Drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. So Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in response, Saul asked two good questions. Who are you and what do you want me to do? So the cause of Saul's conversion was the sovereign grace of God, period. Two stanzas from the hymn of an old friend of mine, Mark Webb, a Baptist pastor that I met many years ago. Uh, He wrote a hymn called The Hiding Place. It captures what we see in this story. Against the God who ruled the sky, I fought with hands uplifted high. Despise the mention of his grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel ran. Almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress. And found that I had no hiding place. This same grace will set Paul free. From the bondage of pride, prejudice, and self-centeredness. C.S. Lewis whose sense of God's pursuit we've already mentioned, also expressed his sense of freedom in responding to God. So is, is, is this, does Paul have freedom here? Did C.S. Lewis have freedom? Do you have freedom when God calls? And it's an interesting way that he, as he often does, describes what happened. He said, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. Or if you like, I was wearing some stiff clothing like a corset or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being uh, there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desire or fears. In a sense, I was 
uh, not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say, quote, I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. On the other hand, I was aware of no motives. You could argue that I was not a free agent. But I'm more inclined to think that this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most that I have ever done. Necessity may not be the opposite of freedom. And perhaps a man is most free when, instead of producing motives, he could only say, I am what I do. The same Saul who played a role in Stephen's execution was to become, in large measure, his replacement. Like Stephen, Saul was a Hellenistic Jew. Saul, like Stephen, spoke with such power and authority that his opponents could not refute him. Saul, like Stephen, had a ministry which focused on the Hellenistic Jews. And like Stephen, the enemies of the gospel will attempt to kill Saul when they could not silence him by means of debate. From now on, Paul will be the greatest preacher and church planter in the history of the church. This was the very one who tried with all of his might to destroy Christianity, and instead he became its greatest missionary. Derek Thomas wrote, Without Paul, there would not have been an Augustine or a Luther or a Wesley. Some of the world's most hostile thinkers, Nietzsche, Freud and George Bernard Shaw, to name but three, saved their most caustic remarks for the Apostle Paul. Dr. J. Gresham Machen wrote, The Christian movement in A.D. 35 would have appeared to be a superficial, to a superficial observer, to be a Jewish sect. Thirty years later, It was plainly a world religion, this establishment of a world religion, to almost as great an extent as any historical movement can be ascribed to one man, and that was the work of Paul. And finally, perhaps you know someone in your life or in the public who appears to be totally hostile are totally indifferent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may be tempted to think, that guy, that woman, they could never be converted. That could never happen. Well, that's this story of Saul tells us otherwise. I want to ask you to pray for those people by name. God loves to take what appears to be um, defeat and turn it into victory. This room, there's quite a few people who could tell similar stories about what God did in your lives. Perhaps there's some here who need for that to become their story. We have seen what God can do in an instant. I think of that line in 
a mighty fortress regarding Satan. One little word shall fell him. A big tree, boom, it's down. Paul was a big tree, and he went down. But he came back up, just like Jesus did. He was a new man in Christ. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That is good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our hearts are lifted to hear your amazing grace towards Saul the persecutor. It delights us to know how you conquer all your and our enemies. We are especially delighted when we see such a dramatic reversal as in this case of Saul, a villain brought low and then lifted up to become a great hero in Christ. May we, like Saul, ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? Use us, Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father and the Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we take what we've heard this morning from the Word of God, thinking about what God did in the life of Saul and what he's done in so many of our lives, what he's been doing for thousands of years, and what he's still doing today. I want to uh, draw your attention to something uh, commentator Derek Thomas uh, pointed out. He said this, The voice accused Saul of persecuting Jesus when all along he had been persecuting Christians, godly Stephen in particular. This underlined in the consciousness of Saul a truth that would be his calling card from that day onward. Of all the theological reflection that Paul engaged in, none was more profound than his insistence that believers are in union and communion with Christ. Nowhere is Paul more identifiable than in his insistence that believers have died with Christ and have been buried with Christ, and have been raised with Christ. The little phrase, in Christ, or in Christ Jesus, will become a Pauline identifier, identity marker. It was here on the Damascus Road that the truth was burned into his soul. For the apostle, Jesus is united to the believer in blessing as well as in suffering, This truth is among the most encouraging in the Bible. In every trial we face, we may be assured that our Lord Jesus Christ is with us. For as the sufferings of Christ abound for us, so also our our comfort abounds through Christ. The Lord's table proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. He is currently alive. He is currently reigning, and that is why we expect his coming. Amen. Blessed are you, O Father, to you belongs all praise and glory. Blessed be your name, O God, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. We are your people, and we desire to serve you forever. We are delighted to claim your name and to worship and adore you. Thank you for the faithful men and women who have gone before us, for those who loved you all their lives and who delivered the gospel through the ages, even unto us. 
so that we might join with them and with our children and our children's children to embrace and proclaim our common salvation. Bless this Lord's Day, we pray. May we learn how to delight and rest in you. Bless our feast and our fellowship. Blessed are you, O Father, whom we serve in your Son, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be glory forevermore. Amen. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen.